Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, Ron and Dale, and the rest of you who are with us uh, on this beautiful Wednesday, year of our Lord Jesus, 2023, January 18th. Forgot that part. Here in Colorado Springs, we got some snow last night. It's cold. It's a good day. But regardless of what time it is, whoever you are and what your weather is like, it's a good day because Jesus made this day. Amen. So let's rejoice. Let's be glad in it. So I got some questions uh, following up on our church series, and I started to type out some uh, responses this morning and decided, you know what, let's just uh, do a, a captain's log supplemental, uh, if you will, and uh, address a couple of these things. And this should be fun. We're going to talk about head coverings and women being silent in the church and so on. So why not? Glad you're with us. Get some coffee. So uh, I forget, someone left a comment, a pretty long one, was just basically asking the question, is there a, a mark, a sign kind of thing that women can, um, can use to display their proper uh, response to the biblical teaching, that kind of thing. He was, and forgive me, I can't remember the person's name and exactly what all they said. So I, if I'm summarizing it incorrectly, please forgive me. But I, I think it was getting along the lines of, uh, you know, the old covenant required men and women to wear separate kinds of clothing to keep them distinct. And in our day, of course, there's, uh, uh, there's not a concern for that. And even in the church, there's not really concern for that. Now, there's no new covenant teaching. There's no requirement in the new covenant for uh, men to dress a certain way and women to dress a certain way. Um, so, and and he said in his question that he wouldn't want to, you know, make this a law, make this a rule. But uh, in light of feminism, in light of all the things that are going on, is there something that women can do? And one of the things that uh, that some folks have uh, have implemented is if you've if you're on social media much and you see that the trad wife uh, kind of thing traditional wife and you see this uh this push for women wearing dresses and that kind of thing which i happen to like i think it's great again i would never want to uh, say the the new testament requires a certain dress code in that sense but i i do like that uh maybe that's just as a man i don't know uh, it certainly shows a difference. And you see occasionally men wearing dresses in defiance against uh, the norms and all that. And they just look silly. And um, I, for some reason, I just don't think that's going to catch on. Uh, even as pants, for instance, has caught on for women. However, in a lot of cases, there's a distinction. I don't know. It, it It's like the whole package, right? Yes, a woman who cuts her hair a certain way and she can make herself look a lot like a man where you can't really tell. And I suppose a man could do the same, but I don't know. It's there are, there are certain certain aspects of our the way we dress that even if men and women are both wearing jeans and both wearing shirts, they can um, there there can be some distinction. So all that to say to uh, to the person who left that comment, uh, it's a good question. I don't know if uh, I. I I don't know if that's really the heart of it, at least in the New Testament. So here's here, here's my starting point as we discuss this today, 1 Corinthians 11, head coverings, and, um, and also in 1 Corinthians 14, where it talks about women being silent. Um, well, let me back up before I give you my overview 
let me ask you a question, just a, uh, a rhetorical question for your own thinking. Are you willing to submit to the scriptural teaching on this, even if it's not what you want, not what you think, and even if it would cause others to judge you and, and disown you in a matter of speaking? Uh, so let me just lay it out there, right? If, if you came to the conclusion, and maybe some of you have, I don't know, but I know that some of you haven't, probably most of you haven't. If you came to the conclusion that God does require women to cover their heads when the church gathers, would you be willing to submit to that? I don't know if we have any women on here today. I know uh, we have had in the past and uh, appreciate their comments always. I, you know, what would you do with that? Um, that's, that has to be our starting place, right? where we say, I'll submit to the Lord's teaching no matter what it is, no matter what the world thinks of it, that kind of thing. On the other hand, we shouldn't try to impose upon others things that the Scripture doesn't impose. Uh, and I, I say that because I think it was uh, R.C. Sproul who argued that uh, as he looked at 1 Corinthians 11, he said, you know, there is some uncertainty here, and he's not entirely convinced what it teaches, but the safest course is for women to have their head covered because uh, it's better to be cover your head and be wrong than to not cover your head and be wrong. Does that make sense? So since, since we don't know, the safe bet is for women to have their head covered. And I'm pretty sure his wife always had her head covered in their quote-unquote worship services. Uh, and as an individual, I can get behind that. What I used to tell our church uh, when I was pastoring was, um, any woman in this assembly who believes it is the right thing to cover your head, I will support you 100%. But I also would stop short of requiring it of women because I don't know. I'm not convinced the scripture requires women to have their head covered. And I think it's just as wrong for church elders to require of people what God does not require as it is to let people get away with what God doesn't let them get away with. So in terms of putting the requirement on women to cover your heads in the assembly, you need to make sure you can articulate from the scripture why that is. So it, this is a tough, this is a tough one all the way around. Uh, and I'll, I'll show you where my confusion comes as, as we go through. Uh, so my starting place for this is number one, I'm going to submit to the scripture. If I'm convinced this is what the Lord requires, I'm going to submit to it. No matter what people think of me. Number two, as I read the scripture and the, the, some of the history books surrounding it, as I've said already uh, in previous uh, live streams of this series, the the feminism of the first century was very much like the feminism of our day. Women were pushing back against the norms and throwing off all restraint, right? We've talked about that. So I see several places in the New Testament, the apostles warning against joining that rebellion against culture, but more importantly, the things 
that God has set up. And if we're going to deal fairly with the scripture, it's pretty clear in areas like in marriage. Uh, Ephesians 5, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And there's a push now among some to say, no, we're to submit to one another. They look at verse 21. Uh, I hadn't intended to, to go here today, but actually I hadn't intended to go anywhere here today. I just made up my mind to uh, <laughs> to do this right before I came on here. So uh, Ephesians 5.21 says, be subject to one another or submit to one another, same word, in the fear of Christ. And so people now are going back to this and saying, see, we're to submit to one another. No, that is not what it says. In fact, it cannot be what it means. This is one of those places where an understanding of the Greek makes this so clear. But the NAS actually does, uh, does help us be subject to one another. And then you notice here in verse 22, be subject is absent. It's, it's in italics, meaning it's not in the original. So the way this flows is, Submit to one another, wives, to your own husbands. And then he's going to go on and say, children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. So this is not a mutual submission teaching here in verse 21. And furthermore, this is where it gets complex in the Greek that I won't try to uh, sp spell out for you here, but... Uh, this submitting is, comes off of this main verb, be filled with the Spirit. So the command is be filled with the Spirit. And then he gives five participial phrases that uh, sort of reveal, explain what that, that uh, being filled with the Spirit looks like. Submit, uh, speaking to one another, singing, making melody, giving thanks, submitting to one another, wives to husbands. So... For now, just take my word for it, uh, or don't. But <laughs> I'm just telling you, in the uh, in the the Greek flow here, there's no way that verse 21 means mutual submission. In fact, the word itself, submission, can't mean that, because the word submit means to submit to authority, to place yourself under one's authority. That's what the word means. You can't have two people submitting to one another. That's not how it works. Authority, by definition, means someone is in authority and someone submits to that authority. So the whole idea of submitting, placing yourself under the authority of another, doing that mutually, it, it, it linguistically just doesn't work. And then, finally for this section, the whole comparison is wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? For the husband's the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. If you're going to say that 521 here is mutual submission, then to carry this out means that Jesus, the Messiah, should also, must also submit to the church. That's obviously blasphemous to say that Jesus is going to submit to the church. So there's very clear lines of submission in the New Testament, wives to husbands, master, uh, slaves to masters, children to their parents, all of us to the governing authorities over us, 
right? Those, uh, there's, there's this, this authority and hierarchy in some sense is all over the, the scripture in the New Testament. Um, so we, we can't dismiss that. And we need to teach all of those things. So there's a, there's a, a rebellion against authority in the New Testament and the apostles continue to teach against uh, those things. Um, Peter's asking the question, what does it mean by head covering? Does all the head covered or is it a little hat? Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. But are you asking that because uh, you sincerely want to know? Or are you just trying to be argumentative here? Let, let, let's walk through this and I'm happy to have your questions because there's a lot here I don't know and, and, and it's difficult. But we got to come to this humbly. And again, as I said at the beginning, and, I, and every time I study this and every time I teach this, I try to put myself in the posture of saying, okay, Lord, show me if I'm wrong because if my wife should have her head covered in the gathering of the church, then I need to require that of her and force that. At the end of the day, what I think and what anybody else thinks is irrelevant. What, is, what does the Lord think? Right? That has to be where we, where we start. Dale says, uh, I get RC's intuition, but that can quickly become be legalistic just in case. Yeah, and, and to his credit, to R.C. Sproul's credit, he did not impose this upon anybody else. Uh, that was his conviction. He taught it, but I, to my knowledge, they never enforced it upon anyone else. He just, for his wife, uh, decided that was the, the right thing. Um, Dave says, women's rights, women by Robert Louis Dabney, 1871. Is that a book? And what, uh, what's, uh, what's that about? Give me a little more information on that. All right. So my starting place is in the culture in the first century, there's a rebellion against authority and any kind of male headship, just as we've seen in our day and, you know, pretty much all over the Western world. And the New Testament is speaking against that. That doesn't answer all the questions, but that's kind of my starting place as I look at this. So let's look at this and I realize how quickly time is passing. This is not going to be done in, in one day. We'll see if it's going to be done in two days. All right. So he says this. Now I praise you, speaking to the church at Corinth, I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I uh, delivered them to you. And this word tradition is, uh, it's the word for handing over. I handed things over to you and you are holding firmly to those things that I handed over to you. I delivered these truths to you and you're holding fast to them. Now that probably is an introduction to the next section because he's just been teaching them about uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols and how it's better to abstain from the meat that that's going to cause someone to stumble. So it seems like he's he's heading a new direction. Remember, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, Lon says, I'm locked up. Am I locked up for everybody? Is your, uh, are you frozen? Lon's on YouTube. Is YouTube frozen? How about uh, Facebook? Uh, Y'all uh, frozen up? Um, I can't tell on my end. Somebody let me know if you're able to hear. I'm going to keep going. Maybe we're having an internet problem. 
What's that? What's the thumbs up? I'm locked up. I'm good. All right. <laughs> Thanks. So, um, oh, first Corinthians. Remember, a lot of first Corinthians is a response to, uh, to the questions that the Corinthians were asking. So he's, he may be responding to some of that. So he's commending them for holding fast to what he delivered. It says now, or but, or and, I want you to understand that the Messiah is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Messiah. Dale says, does the word tradition imply a culture, contextual nature of what is he's about to say? I heard some say that. Um, not necessarily. It's a, literally the word means to hand over um, the things that he handed to them. I don't know that we could just argue from the word that it's a cultural custom thing and not something to be implemented. So it's a good question. I'm not sure the word itself will answer that question. All right, so just look at this for a minute. Christ is the head of every man. Are you a man? Then the Messiah is your head. So the first interpretive question that comes to my mind in this whole section is, is man here man or husband? Because the word can mean either depending on the context. There was no distinct word, at least not in the New Testament, to separate husband from men. Uh, and so we've got to let the context decide, is this instruction primarily for males or for married males? So far, we don't know, do we? All he's, all he's done is use this word man, uh, male, and it could go either way. Now, maybe as we compare it to Ephesians 5, the idea of headship, which he does use here, uh, maybe that would throw us toward the husband side of things. That's where I lean based on the flow of the, uh, the argument here, but uh, it, it's an interpretive decision. So what would be the difference? I want you to know, I want you to understand Christ is the head of every man. I want you to know that Christ is the head of every husband. There's a, a difference, right? There's a, there's a nuance there, one way or the other. Especially when you get to the next phrase. The man is head of a woman. So again, the question is, is he building the case that there's this hierarchy? Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman. Would that mean every man is the head of every woman? That opens up a whole nother arena of questions, doesn't it? In Ephesians 5 that I just read or quoted earlier, uh, he says a wife is, submit, is to submit to her own husband. 
And by the way, that is still uh, the same word. So it's the, a woman is to submit to her own man. And we uh, look at that as, um, as husband and wife in that context, right? So here's my working theory for this discussion. He's talking about husbands and wives. Let's see if that plays out or if anything throws a wrench in that. Because of the concept of headship, based on other teaching, I, I don't see a generic, universal, all women are to submit to all men in the rest of scripture. Do you? Am I, am I missing something with that? But we got to answer the question. So let's, let's operate under that assumption for now and see if it works. So the Messiah is the head of every husband. And the husband is the head of the wife. And God is the head of the Messiah. So before we get all worked up about the unfairness of this kind of headship, realize that even Christ here is in a place of submission. So if you're going to argue against submission and throw stones at that and say that's unfair and whatever, well, then you got to deal with Jesus being in submission to his father. Does that somehow make Jesus inferior to the father? Does that demean Christ that he's under the headship of the father or of God as the word is used here? Of course not. So there's nothing demeaning about being in submission to authority. It doesn't mean you're inferior. It doesn't mean it's oppressive and suppressive and all of that, which our culture is throwing at us. It just means this is how God has set it up. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of a husband. Husband is the head of the wife. Does everybody see that? Anybody want to argue with that? Uh, Dale says, I suppose if man weren't husband, it could imply something about fathers or male relatives, but that seems a contextual stretch. Yeah, it seems to me the only options are either it's man as man or it's husband. If we start now throwing other contexts and other, other re relationships in here, I don't see any textual warrant for that. So it seems like those are the only options. Either he's making a generic statement about uh, men or he is talking about husbands. Now, someone may ask the question, does that mean that Christ is not the head of single men? <laughs> which is, right? Uh, which is a question, and, and we're going to talk about uh, women uh, through this. It's like, is this just for married women? Or what about single women? Do they not have to have their head covered? Um, yeah, those are good questions. We got to come back to the context. What is the point that he's trying to make? Uh, which is part of what we're trying to figure out. And remember, in, in Corinthians, especially since he's responding to uh, questions they're asking, we're listening to one end of a phone conversation here. We don't know exactly what their questions were. We don't know all of what they were dealing with. So that should also give us pause uh, to be careful because we're trying to figure out what was happening in Corinth that he's addressing and that provoked this response. And, uh, you know, if we had their letter to him, maybe it would help. And if we had more information of what was going on in Corinth, maybe it would help. All right. So I see our time is quickly 
flying past here. So let me kind of set up uh, where we'll go tomorrow with this question. So Christ is the head of man or husband, the husband's head of the wife, God's the head of Christ. Every man, every husband, I think, who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. So in verse 3 here, headship is metaphorical, right? Christ is the head of every man. He's not talking about, uh, or if this is a husband, he's not talking about me as a husband having a literal head, which is Christ. It's that statement of authority. It's metaphorical. Now in verses four and five, does he switch to literal? Every man who has on his head, you see the word something there is not, uh, not actually in, uh, in, in the, uh, the, the original, um, and a woman who has her head uncovered. What's going on here that he, he goes from the, the status, the authoritative status of headship and submission to something on your physical head. I'm going to leave you with this. If you want to, if you want to do a little research in, uh, in light of tomorrow, this phrase of head uncovered occurs three, I think it's three times in the Old Testament in Leviticus. Let's see, did I pull one of them up here? Yeah, one of them is this one. Leviticus 13.45. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be uncovered. And the hair is not actually in the original, it's just head. His head shall be uncovered. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of this, it's the same words as over here in 1 Corinthians, the woman head uncovered. So the leper needs to have his clothes torn, his head uncovered, and shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean, he shall remain unclean all the days of his life. So this appears to be kind of a, a disheveled look. Do you see that? If, if you're a leper, tear your clothes. That's the, the, the mourning, you know, the weeping, the, 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 the sorrowful kind of posture with your clothes. Leave your head unkempt and, and nothing holding it up in any kind of a, um, a style. I don't know, any kind of a, what a, any, anything that makes your hair look good. <laughs> and uh, cover your mustache and go around saying unclean, unclean. So I think that's the only concept and it, it occurs, I think a couple more times in the Old Testament. I just looked at this quickly before we came on live here. So is that what's going on here? A woman whose hair is disheveled and tied up? Is that what's going on? Anyway, think about it. Look it. Look at it up. Look it up. Research it, and uh, come tomorrow if you have some input or 
put it in the comments. And uh, if you have some light to shed on this, we'd love to see it. And we'll keep working through this. I, I guess we're going to extend the church discussion a little bit longer, at least this part. Let me know what you think. We'll see you tomorrow. Take care. God bless.